Dear listener, this story might be upsetting for some of you. It mentions a domestic violence incident, and it also includes details about the death of a child. You might want to skip this one if there are children listening, too. Thank you. (laughs) Don't throw it. Get it? Leah Garcia loved being a mom to little Joseph. I thought it was going to be, he was going to be a hard baby, but he wasn't. He was really easy. From the day I had him, he would sleep throughout the whole night. I used to have to wake him up to feed him. He was a really easy baby when I had him. When she had him. Joseph was five months old when he was taken from her by social workers from LA's Child Protective Services. Leah was 22 at the time, and her three-year-old daughter was also removed something she never thought would happen to her own children. See, Leah grew up surrounded by foster children. Her grandmother was a foster mother, and throughout her childhood, Leah played with kids she came to feel were like siblings, children abused or neglected by their own parents, who her grandmother gave a home to. And I remember growing up, my worst fear was, my worst fear is if I ever have kids, they're going to end up in the system. And then my worst fear came true. What happened after her children were removed by county authorities became a mother's worst nightmare. The same system that was supposed to keep her children safe proved to be the biggest threat to their well-being. From Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, unsafe in foster care. When domestic violence takes place in a home, how can you protect the children who live there? Is it best to take the children away from that dangerous environment? Or is it better for their well-being for them to stay with the non-violent parent? These are difficult decisions to make, decisions that the child welfare system is making every single day. Joseph being taken away from me, he was only months old. That was hard because I don't know how somebody's treating my baby. In some cases, like Leah Garcia's, the removal of children is the result of mothers who are experiencing domestic violence and call the police looking for safety. There are more than 670,000 children in the foster care system in the United States. Many of them are placed with foster parents, some just temporarily, others for years until they become adults. These children are also disproportionately Black and Latino or Latina. What happens when the system that is meant to protect these children falls short and even ends up putting their lives at risk? And who's to blame when bad things happen to children in the care of the government. My head's just going out of control. Like, what what happened to my son? Where's my son at? Like, why hasn't anybody called me? How come nobody contacted me? Today, an investigation that looks into the Los Angeles County Department of Children and Family Services, the largest child protective agency in the country. Reporter Deepa Fernandez, who you heard from at the top of the show, has been investigating the foster care system for two years now, and she's going to bring us 
this complex story. Thank you. Don't throw it. Get it. Don't throw it. If you throw it, you're going to get in trouble. This story starts with domestic violence, something Leah Garcia had never experienced before she met the father of her baby boy, Joseph. By then, Leah already had another daughter who was three years old from a different partner. We're not using her daughter's name in this story because she's a minor and we want to protect her privacy, so you'll hear a beep when her name is mentioned. Leah says her relationship with Joseph's dad was pretty unstable. Leah didn't want to talk about Joseph's dad or the abuse in much detail. It's really hard for her. I feel like he, like, eased into the way he treated me. I feel like when people, like, slowly ease into treating you a certain type of way, they kind of manipulate you a lot. And um, I feel like that's what happened. So I feel like if you're new to it, you've never dealt with anything like that before, then, yeah, you don't really know what to do. As he became more aggressive... He could not live with the family, but he sometimes came back, unannounced, and one time he broke a window. For a while, I was calling the cops on Joseph's dad. I was calling um, multiple times when he would just show up and things would happen. I would call. Leah believed the police would help her. She was doing what she thought was the right thing. She was seeking safety. I called the police and, of course, nothing happened. What did happen was that in October of 2018, the police called in LA's Department of Children and Family Services, also known as DCFS. They are required to do so by law when children are present during an incident of domestic violence. The abuse Leah experienced was serious. He had a knife at one point. It seems that led social workers to classify the risk to Leah's children as serious. L.A. County runs the largest child welfare agency in the United States, serving more than 35,000 kids across 4,000 square miles. The Department of Children and Family Services is charged with ensuring the safety and well-being of all these children, nothing short of a Herculean task. Its budget is fairly mighty too, $2.9 billion annually. When DCFS social workers came to meet Leah after she called the police, it felt punitive, she says, like she was the one under investigation when she'd not done anything to hurt her children. For their part, social workers were following protocol, asking the questions, investigating whether Leah was able to keep her children safe from the violence. Leah says she was not offered help by the social workers to take her children and escape the abuse. The police did finally give her an emergency restraining order to keep the abusive man away. Then, it was on her to get a permanent order of protection. I didn't know how I was able to, like, obtain a restraining order, what you need to get a restraining order, what, how you can get a restraining order. Nobody ever talked to me about how I was able to do those things or how I can get it done. It's not so easy to get that restraining order that DCFS holds up kind of as the gold standard for proof that you really do want to keep your children safe. 
Sharon Barmer-Cartagena is an attorney with public counsel in Los Angeles, and she's represented many parents who have survived domestic violence only to have their children removed by Child Protective Services. So it's not simply enough for a survivor to go to court and fill out domestic violence paperwork to request a domestic violence restraining order. You know, you have to fill out the paperwork, which is quite lengthy. Then you have to figure out how to file it. After you file it, you have to serve it. It's it's not so easy sometimes to serve paperwork because it's not just handing the paperwork off to the person. And then even if you do serve them, you have to file a proof of service to prove you've served them. So I've seen lots of cases where folks really get tangled up in the process. That's exactly what happened to Leah Garcia. I went to the court the next day and I got an actual restraining order, but I had to, of course, serve him or I had to find somebody to serve him. And I don't know where he was or anything like that, so it was hard for me to do that. There's no denying a knife can be a deadly weapon. And this is what social workers are tasked with deciding day in, day out, which domestic violence scenario could turn deadly for the children? And what is the non-offending parent doing to keep her children safe? So unfortunately, there's a perception among DCFS workers, and it's related to recent um, and very unfortunate child fatalities, that cases involving domestic violence are more violent. And because of that, it's at a much higher risk that children will, you know, be killed um, before DCFS gets involved. These cases are very serious and there is a risk of violence. However, we I would say that the best way to, to address that is to do a lethality assessment up front and then make a safety plan with the non-abusive parents so that both the survivor parent and the child are kept together. Social workers did ask Leah whether she could move. She said she couldn't. She still had six months left on her lease. DCFS could not share information about this particular case because of privacy laws. But Leah says social workers did visit and check her apartment to make sure it was clean, the fridge was stocked with food, and it was safe. They said it you know, the house looked more than fine. And they didn't really, like, make an issue of of anything that was wrong with the house. They said the house was fine and that everything looked fine, that their only problem was the police reports and that I had the police reports when I had the kids with me. But I had told them I'm calling the police, so, you know, what, what am I supposed to do? The police reports that DCFS social workers told Leah were the problem were the instances she'd called the cops when the domestic violence was occurring and her children were also there. Leah thought calling the police was to keep her and the children safe. But it turns out that's likely where her problems with DCFS began. Social workers concluded Leah was not doing enough to cut off access of the abusive parent to the home. Leah says she tried her hardest. And then, as she was attempting to serve a restraining order on her abusive boyfriend by herself, she got a call from the social worker. The social workers asked me, oh, are you busy tomorrow? And I said, um, no, why? And they told me, oh, well, we would like to come over and just talk with you. And I said, okay. And I already had a feeling inside that they were going to take the kids away when they said that. But in my head, I was thinking, well, if they were going to take them away and I was like, you know, they thought so much that they shouldn't be here, why would they wait until tomorrow? Why would they, 
why would they wait a whole next day to come and take them for me? And sure enough, the next day when they came, they told me they were taking Joseph and for me. And what reason did they give you? They gave me the reason that I wasn't um, protecting them properly, that I was like allowing the abuse in the home. And did they know you were in the process of trying to serve him? Uh, they knew I got the restraining order. I sent them a picture of it. Six days after Leah said she got the restraining order, DCFS took her two children away. Her three-year-old daughter ended up with her own father, but Joseph, who was five months old at the time, was placed with a foster family. The number of Latino children removed by DCFS in 2020 amounted to almost 60% of all children removed, similar to the number of Latino children in the county's child population. Yet for African-American children, who make up only 7.4% of LA County's child population, they are almost one quarter of all the children removed. Now consider the numbers for white children. They are almost 17% of the county's child population, and last year, of all the children removed, about 12% were white, five percentage points lower than their prevalence in the population. And these numbers for 2020 haven't changed much over the previous five years, and before that too. As acknowledged by many experts and those who work in the field, racism exists, and it's permeated the child welfare system for years. What we see um, in Los Angeles and really nationally in the child welfare system are black and brown mothers um, are being brought into the system for behaviors that that occur across racial and um, income groups. Why? Cartagena, the attorney who works with survivors of domestic violence, says the problem doesn't even start with DCFS. It all starts when people call in to report what they suspect is abuse or neglect of a child. Implicit bias really infuses every aspect of the child welfare system. You know, you have folks called on for behaviors that wouldn't be called on if, you know, they were honestly white and upper middle class. You know, I've seen cases where folks are called on for co-sleeping or for falling asleep while breastfeeding. I've seen cases where folks are called on um, for resource issues. There's a call by a teacher to the child abuse hotline because the child doesn't have glasses. There's another factor here too, poverty. Many of the children who are removed in LA County are poor, and in LA County, impoverished children are overwhelmingly black and Latino. Among America's largest cities, LA has the second highest rate of child removals when rates of family poverty are factored in. One of the deepest critiques of the child welfare system nationwide is that too often poverty is mistaken for neglect. And when teachers or welfare workers or police see what they believe is neglect, the law requires them to call in a report to the DCFS child abuse hotline. They're called mandated reporters. Child protection hotline, my name is Catherine. How may I help you? I'm inside the hotline hub in Los Angeles, where social workers field hundreds of calls a day from anyone who suspects a child is being abused or neglected. Calls can be made by anyone. 
a neighbor might hear or see something worrisome, she calls. But the majority of callers, according to the director of the hotline, are the mandated reporters, teachers, social workers, cops. And you said this is the first time you see something like this? Calling in is a first-grade teacher who noticed during her Zoom class that one of her little students had a black eye. Has there ever been concerns in regards to the child and physical abuse or any kind of abuse? This is the first place where a children's social worker has to begin making judgments about the veracity of a call and the threat level to a child. By asking a lot of questions, the social worker must decide whether or not to send out another social worker to follow up. Due to the information, they do not rise to the level of abuse or neglect. It's not clear in regards to what happened, as you said, and there has not been any prior concern. In this case, Catherine, the DCFS social worker, decides that the teacher calling in needs to talk to the parents first and then call back. Too little information in this call to make a judgment that a black eye might be due to abuse. Some argue the bias in the system starts right here, given the majority of calls suspecting abuse are about black and Latino children. But what the numbers show is that from this point onwards, if you're Latino or black or Native American in LA, you are much more likely to have your children removed than white or Asian parents. Coming up on Latino USA... Leah struggles to stay in touch with her son, Joseph, and she starts worrying about his well-being. Stay with us. No te vayas. Hey, we're back. And before the break, L.A.'s Department of Children and Family Services had decided to remove Leah's children from her home after she called the police looking for safety from her abusive partner. Her three-year-old daughter was placed with her father, but her five-month-old baby, Joseph, was assigned to a foster care family. Reporter Deepa Fernandez picks it up from here. Leah Garcia is not wealthy. She didn't have the resources to simply leave her apartment and find a new one that her boyfriend wouldn't know about. She was focused on raising her baby and toddler as best she could, until that day in November 2018 when they were taken from her. I was breastfeeding him when he was taken. I breastfed my daughter for two years, so I was planning on doing the same thing with Joseph. And that was my first uh, question when they had taken him away was, how am I supposed to, you know, like, uh, how is that going to go? Like, she had told me, well, there's there's not much we can do about that. Um, we're going to have to go to court. And then, you know, if you get him back after court, then, you know, then you're more than welcome to breastfeed him again. And I was just thinking, like, breastfeeding and formula feeding are two different things, but... I mean, what position am I in to really do anything about that? I wanted to know how a baby or toddler is impacted when removed suddenly from his or her mother. So I sought out an expert. There is nothing worse than watching an infant being ripped out of a mother's arms. Shanta Trivedi represented women in Brooklyn, New York, who had their children removed. She saw many inconsolable babies after being taken from their mothers. I can't imagine 
what that feels like, first of all, for a mother, but also just for a little baby who has basically, you know, never experienced the world to be taken from the only comfortable place that they know. Their mother's arms, you know, and and there's very clear data that when you break an attachment like that, there are negative impacts. After feeling like the system was not set up to help children or mothers of colour, Trevethi began to comb the academic literature, looking to see if there was evidence that children are harmed when, in an instant, they're taken from their mothers. We're talking about a crucial period of infant-parent attachment where, besides breastfeeding, they're not going to have that contact with their mother. There is that attachment that's formed and disrupting that suddenly based on the literature, does seem to have really adverse consequences on the children. Babies and toddlers can't talk through their feelings of confusion, worry or fear due to sudden separation from their parent. Young children might blame themselves. They may cry a lot or refuse to eat or be unable to sleep. It's trauma, Trevedi says. But how do they explain to a child that your mom didn't do enough to protect you when your dad was beating her up and so you have to leave your mom too. I just don't understand how a child can process that information in a way that's healthy. Toddlers throwing tantrums or, you know, teenagers talking back. Again, these are children who've been removed from their parents, which is traumatic, and then expected to be like these perfect kids that really don't exist in any family, right? They're also held to this higher standard despite the trauma that they've been through. Joseph was just five months old when he was taken from Leah Garcia and placed with a foster family, people he'd never before seen in his life. Leah went from being with Joseph 24-7 to seeing him three times a week for an hour each time. And the foster mother had to be present at all the visits to watch Leah and her baby son. It was hard watching somebody else have to watch me hold my son. I couldn't even change his diaper without her watching me. Another thing that blew my mind, actually, was that he wasn't eating with her. They had, she had mentioned that to me, he's not eating at all. And I told her, well, he, he was breastfed. And she's like, oh, it's just going to be a hard transition for him. And he wasn't sleeping. So he was, he was having a hard time eating and sleeping when he was there. But stopping breastfeeding turned out to be the least of the problems. A few months after Joseph was taken, when Leah texted the foster mother to confirm she was on her way to visit, she was given the news that Joseph was no longer in her care. In fact, he was in the hospital. She just texted me and saying, oh, you know, I would never do anything to hurt Joseph. And, you know, we all love him very much. And my head's just going out of control. Like, what what happened to my son? Where's my son at? Like, why hasn't anybody called me? How come nobody contacted me? How come he was in the hospital and nobody called me while he was at the hospital so I could be there with him? I didn't know what to do. I was, I was, I was freaking out. Turns out Joseph broke his arm. I went to the hospital. I I just see my son like laying there, like screaming. And nobody has answers for me. Even to just be with Joseph while he was in hospital, she had to demand it, she says. 
and her DCFS social worker didn't tell her much about how Joseph broke his arm. What bothers me with the system is that they don't have an answer for you for anything. They don't have an answer for you when you have a question, which I feel like if you have a question about your children, you should they should have an answer. They took your kids from you because they don't feel like you can do it. If you find out that your kid's arm is broken and nobody's ever told you anything about it, you're going to freak out. You're going to want to know how it happened, why it happened, why did nobody tell you about it? And if you freak out, you're you're not a stable person. You you shouldn't have your kid. This is another thing we're going to write down, which isn't right. It's not okay because how are you supposed to react? Because you're in the system and you're a mom and, you, you know, you were in an abusive relationship. They're going to look at you a certain way and say, oh, yeah, she's not stable. After his brief hospital stay for the broken arm, DCFS placed Joseph in a new foster home. This new foster family lived in the far reaches of LA County. So far, in fact, that many Angelinos might not even know Palmdale and Lancaster are part of LA. It would take Leah over two hours on the bus, one way, just to get to Joseph's new placement home. She didn't have a car. She also took the bus to work, a job she was expected to have to show DCFS that she could support her children. DCFS also required Leah to take parenting and domestic violence classes. In between all this, she had to find her way to visit her baby, who was now 55 miles away. There's times where I had to think, am I going to go to work today or am I going to see my son today? They want, they want you to have your classes done and they want you to make time for your classes. They want you to have a job, a full-time job. They want to make sure that you're able to provide for your children when you get them back. And they want you to see your children. If you don't, that counts against you. Life was very hard for Leah. She also wondered how well Joseph was being treated by his new foster mother. And with the first visit I had with her at the park, she had not one, not two, I think three, three children with her. Three extra children, two little boys and a little girl that were her other foster children and they were running around there at the park, and I couldn't even have my visit because I have to be right in front of her. She has to be watching me. The record shows Leah did have reason to be concerned. At a visit to the dentist in early 2020, over a year after he'd been removed from her, Joseph had cavities in two of his front teeth, his baby teeth. Joseph had no teeth when he was taken from Leah, and now, at 18 months old, his teeth were starting to rot. I wanted to see what the commute would have been like three times a week for Leah to visit her son. I also wanted to meet Joseph's foster mother to hear about her experience raising Joseph. We're not using her name, as in this investigation, we're looking into the child welfare system as a whole. So here I am in Monrovia, a little city in LA County, where Leah Garcia lived at the time when Joseph was in foster care in Palmdale. So let's see, GPS says it's 55 miles and it'll take me an hour and 19 minutes. Okay, no traffic, pretty lucky. The foster mother used to work as a sales associate prior to fostering Joseph and the other children. She was employed by the Home Depot, 
Cricket Wireless and Viata Supermarkets. I talked to one employer, the owner of an aged care home where Joseph's foster mother was a carer, and he said she was a very good carer. He had no complaints with her. Okay, and an hour and 23 minutes after I left Monrovia, I am pulling up here in Palmdale, and there's a lot of people outside the home. There are one, two, three, four kids. There are some lounge seats. There appear to be a couple of adults hanging out with the kids outside. It's a cul-de-sac. It's a beautiful, warm evening. So I'm going to go in and I'm going to knock on the door and I'm going to see if the foster mother wants to talk to me. Joseph's second foster mother didn't want to talk. I've been covering child welfare for years now. I've met many, many parents who've had their children removed And many of them have complaints about the foster parents. But I also know many foster parents who are good, loving people. I understand that there's an inbuilt predisposition for an upset parent whose child has been removed to find fault with a foster parent. That's why I wanted to meet Joseph's foster mother. But she didn't want to talk to me. And when you hear what happened, maybe her silence will make more sense. 911, what is your emergency? Hi. Yes, I have an emergency. My foster baby, um, he's a year and a half. I was going to the store, and I heard him making, like, wheezing noises, and I stopped. I turned around just to make sure he was fine, and I came back home. He had the, he had removed the thing to the car seat on, her, on his shoulders, and I think he choked himself. We're trying to give him CPR. Okay, hold on. Coming up on Latino USA, we look into what happened to Joseph Chacon the night of January 24th, 2020. And unexpectedly, our investigation takes a turn, and it's not good. Stay with us. No te vayas. We're back. Before the break, Joseph Chacon had been placed with a second foster family after he ended up in the hospital with a broken arm. But in the second foster home, he didn't find safety either. Reporter Deepa Fernandez continues now with the story. Early one Saturday morning in late January of 2020, 14 months after her children were removed, Leah Garcia's phone rang. The number was blocked, so she didn't answer. I got a second call, and something told me to answer it, and I answered it, and I talked, and there was a man, he had told me, oh, I need to speak with you. And I felt very like, who is this guy? Leah didn't trust him. He ended up telling me that he was a detective. He told me he works for the Homicide Bureau. So then I started thinking, like, homicide bureau, like, that means, like, somebody died. What the hell? How am I linked up to anything like that? Like, there's no way, like, you're, you're calling for the right person. He goes, no, I have the right person. Um, there's been an accident. I need to talk to you. But he wouldn't say anything more over the phone. Leah was freaked out. She'd never before gotten such a strange call. 
from a homicide detective. And I remember I called my mom, I called my dad, I called my brother. I'm like, are you guys okay? Like, you know, there's this weird guy calling me on the phone. He He's not even giving me his number. And, you know, Phil's real sketchy. He's telling me he needs to meet up with me in person that, some, that somebody's been in an accident. I called my grandma. I called my uncle. I'm calling people to make sure that everybody's okay. The last people I feel like I need a call is my daughter and my son, because those are the, the two people that should be the safest right now. So Leah went to meet the detective. It's in this tiny little shopping center parking lot. And he walks up to me and he says, hi, Leah. He said, uh, you have a son in foster care. And I said, yes. He goes, your son Joseph died. I don't remember it too much. I remember I was on the floor and I was crying. And he tells me, your son passed away. He died and he just tell, he starts asking me questions about Joseph and, and I had asked him when, you know, and like, how did it happen? He didn't have answers for me about how it happened. Joseph died on Friday, January 24th of 2020. Leah was informed the next morning, Saturday, by the detective. She desperately wanted more info, but it was the weekend, so DCFS's office were closed. So first thing Monday, Leah called her DCFS social worker, only she says she didn't answer her calls. I waited for that Monday, and I called my social worker's phone about 50 times. And there was a bigger problem with me calling her phone than there was of them not having an answer for me of how my son passed. I called her about 50 times. She ignored each call. I got a call later on from her supervisor, and she told me I cannot call that many times, that it was inappropriate, and that um, she was busy that morning. We tried to contact the social workers in charge of Leah's case, but DCFS didn't allow us to talk to them. Leah felt like in the little exchange she had with the detective, they were somehow insinuating that Joseph may have contributed to his own death, which baffled and outraged her. The day after he passed away, on the 25th of January, I was asked, was Joseph a difficult child by the detective? And in my head... I'm wondering, why would you ask me if my son was a difficult child? And for him to tell me, well, the first foster parent and the second foster parent both said that he was a very difficult child, which was really hard for me to believe because when he was with me, he was he was great. I first met Leah in the summer of 2020 six months after Joseph's death, as the pandemic raged on. She still knew very little about what had happened to her baby boy. She felt like her hands were tied. DCFS still had her daughter, and she wanted to make sure she got her back. Remember how she felt like she couldn't freak out when Joseph broke his arm, or the social workers would judge her for it? 
Well, now she'd lost one child and was desperate to ensure her other child came home to her. But she also wanted answers. Leah had very little information on how her son Joseph died. So I decided to see if I could find out anything. Palmdale is remote. It's the high desert, and you have to wind through barren mountain terrain on a single freeway to get here from downtown LA. Along with neighbouring city Lancaster, there's a very tragic history up here when it comes to the child welfare system. In fact, this area has the highest maltreatment rates of children aged 0 to 5 in LA County. Between 2013 and 2016, it also had the highest number of children dying at the hands of caregivers. You might have heard about little Gabriel Fernandez. A new development in the agonizing case of Gabriel Fernandez, the eight-year-old boy tortured to death by his mother and her boyfriend. This tragic death of a young boy at the hands of his mother and her boyfriend in 2013 received tons of media coverage. Gabriel Fernandez was killed right here in Palmdale. In 2019, another four-year-old, Noah Cuatro, was also tragically killed by his parents in Palmdale. These deaths made big news in Los Angeles. The children were known to child welfare authorities, so their deaths sparked greater outrage as many demanded to know why they'd not been removed from such dangerous homes. Notably, Gabriel's case didn't just examine the responsibility of the caregivers. But prosecutors also put the blame on these people, four L.A. County Department of Children and Family Services employees that handled Gabriel's case. They were charged with child abuse and falsifying records related to the case. The charges against the DCFS employees were eventually dismissed, yet there was an impact. Experts agree that charging the social workers led to a more cautious approach, and the numbers of children removed in the following years spiked. But still, children kept dying at the hands of caregivers. In the case of Joseph Chacon, there was little news coverage beyond a television news report the day he passed away in Palmdale. This Palmdale home turned into a crime scene after sheriff's investigators say a toddler was found not breathing. Just after 9 o'clock Friday night, a woman identified by neighbours as the mom, appearing to reenact for sheriff's homicide detectives where her one-year-old son was found in the family car in a car seat, unresponsive. Why did this child death not spark outrage? Could it be because he died in foster care? Essentially in the care of the county? I wanted to piece together what happened the night Joseph died. Over a series of months of investigating and filing many public record requests, I was able to learn key parts of the story. It started on a Friday evening, in late January 2020, when his foster mother decided to take Joseph with her to Target. Joseph had eaten some soup around 5.40pm, according to his foster mother, and then he napped. Around 7.30pm, he ate crackers. Then, at 8.10pm, she says she puts him in an infant car seat capsule and straps him into the car in a rear-facing position for the 1.7-mile drive from her home to Target. But as she makes this five to six minute drive to the store, she hears noises in the back seat. She told authorities that she thought Joseph was joking with her, but when she turns to look at him, 
it appears that he's slipping down in his car seat. So she turns around and drives home. She calls 911 at 9.09 p.m. 911, what is your emergency? Hi. Yes, I have an emergency. My foster baby, um, he's a year and a half. I was going to the store, and I heard him making, like, wheezing noises. And I stopped. I turned around just to make sure he was fine. And I came back home. He had the... He had removed the thing to the car seat on, her, on his shoulders. And I think he choked himself. We're trying to give him CPR. Okay, <laughs> hold on. What's your at? Stay on the line and let I, me get the paramedics, okay? Sure. The 911 operator goes on to ask the foster mother if she's taken the child out of the car seat. Oh, he was choked by the, the car seat? Yes. The, the um, car seat, do, okay, yes, do I take him out? Do I take him out or what? Hey, ma'am, is he breathing? Um, it just drops from around his neck if that's what's choking him. Do it now quickly. Is he still breathing? The 911 dispatcher tells the foster mother to take Joseph out of the car seat to start CPR. The fire department arrives while the foster mother is still on the phone with the 911 operator performing CPR. Soon thereafter, at 9.18, the emergency medical technician service arrives. But the timeline of leaving home around 8.10pm, as reported by the detective in the autopsy, leaves one whole hour before she called for help. I did the drive from the foster mother's home in Palmdale to the nearest target. It took five minutes. According to her own recounting of what happened, if she left for target around 8.10pm, she would have heard Joseph gasping in the next five minutes. Why did she call 911 a whole hour later at 9.09pm? There were other questions I had when I read the autopsy. And there was something shocking buried in Joseph's autopsy report. Another foster baby had died two months before in the same home. 911, what is the emergency? Hi, yes. I'm calling in because I have a three-month-old um, baby boy. Um, he is a foster baby. He's not breathing. Yet, when Joseph died, the cause of this foster child's death was still under investigation. Why hadn't DCFS removed all the foster children from this home, including Joseph? This story doesn't end here. Next week, we investigate the death of the two babies and ask difficult questions about the systemic problems affecting L.A. County's foster care system and the United States as a whole. That's next week on Latino USA. This episode was produced by Deepa Fernandez with help from Victoria Estrada. It was edited by Marta Martinez and mixed by Julia Caruso and Stephanie LeBeau. Deepa is an early childhood reporting fellow at Pacific Oaks College, which is funded in part by First 5 LA. Fact-checking for this episode by Ben Kalin. The Latino USA team includes Andrea Lopez Cruzado, Mike Sargent, Julieta Martinelli, Ginny Montalvo, Alejandra Salazar, Reinaldo Leaños Jr., and Julia Rocha, with help from Raul Perez. 
Our editorial director is Julio Ricardo Varela. Special thanks to Lori Turkbichakchu and Beth Harus of the Kids Data Program, Richard Cohn of USC School of Social Work, Susan E. Seeger of UC Irvine School of Law, Neil Rossini, and Sylvie de Toledo. Additional engineering by Leah Shaw with help from Gabriela Baez. Our digital editor is Luis Luna. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Maria Esquinca. Our intern is Oscar de Leon. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us next week to listen to part two of this story. And in the meantime, I'll see you on social media. Bye. 